Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And we are joined today uh, across the oceans and uh, across the continent of America. We are joined from all the way from Los Angeles by uh, one of the great uh, writers about comedy writing and, in fact, a very successful sitcom writer himself. Uh, the original uh, writer of uh, the How to Write Sitcom books, the Sitcom Toolbox, in fact, the Sitcom Toolbox, uh, no less. And his name is John Vorhouse. Hi, guys. Hey, John. Hi, John. Great to have you on. Welcome to your show. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. My pleasure. I was going to say, back in the uh, 1990s, um, there were there were the only books that you could read uh, about how to write comedy were written by uh, Aristotle and John Vorhouse. So um, we couldn't get Aristotle to join us, but we got the next best thing. So we are really, <laughs> we are delighted to have you uh, with us, John. And um, Thank you. Yeah. I, I have to tell you, I feel about as old as Aristotle <laughs> when you give, give me that introduction. But yeah, it's true. Um, I would say if I have to characterize my career, I've been a one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind a lot of times with a lot of success. The book you're talking about, The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not, was really first in the field in writing about comedy. And I've had some other experiences. We don't have to go into it, but I'm the same in poker. It's not like I know a lot about poker. I just got there before everybody else. Ah. So that's a good key to success. Get yeah. there first. I'm interested in that subtitle there where you say how to be, how to be funny when you're not. Um, did you, is that something you noticed when you, because you used to write on uh, Married with Children, didn't you? Uh, I did write on Married with Children, but for that subtitle, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not, what I learned about myself as a writer at the time and about people all around me, everybody was like really concerned that everybody's going to find out they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're a fraud. They're not really funny. So for me to call the book How to Be Funny Even If You're Not, it's like a nod to that reality. It says to the reader, I know what you're thinking. Before you even open up this book, I already know where your insecurity lies. And not only that, but I packaged it in such a way that you got to unpack it and get a little laugh out of it. The subtitle makes you laugh. How can it be funny even if I'm not? Oh, that's a joke. <laughs> oh, so this guy who's promising to make me funny is already being funny in the subtitle, and I haven't even opened a book yet. I think that a lot of why that book was a success, has been a success, is just the luck of coming up with that subtitle and making it work for me like I did. Well, you're being very modest calling it luck. It's just smart and good sense, which is why we tell people when they're writing their spec scripts, for goodness sake, put a joke on the first page, uh, because it makes the guy or girl reading it just think, hey, joke, great. Um, it's right. just what I'm looking for. Yeah. But as, as you were saying there, just making me think how I've only recently been really conscious of the fact that I think when people think about writing jokes, they're thinking about writing funny things for their characters to say that the characters think are funny. And actually, sitcom writing is, is really hard because the characters don't know they're funny and that we, we are sitting outside of this and finding them funny. And so actually, people worry about... The, the, the joke jokes, but actually if you get the character and the situation and that kind of stuff right, then you're in with a chance of it just being funny anyway, aren't you? Well, yeah, what you're talking about is giving your character a strong comic filter and then letting your character filter reality through that perspective. We're talking about Married with Children. We can look at Al Bundy and say, this guy knows he's a loser. He's never cracking jokes. He's never going set up punchline except to reveal the truth and pain of his experience, which is he's a loser. He's stuck in his miserable family. Other sitcoms, different examples, Sheldon Cooper in Big Bang Theory, where he looks at the world through the comic filter of I'm better than everyone. So he never has to tell jokes in a set-up punchline sense, but only has to be the person he is and filter reality through his strong comic filter. 
The people that you're talking about, the people who say, I need jokes on the page, I need setup and punchline, aren't quite yet grasping the power that lies in this notion of creating a character, giving them an uncompromisingly strong and wild comic filter, and then just pushing reality straight through that. That's the thing that works, not setup punchline. However, I would like to add, there is one character who is driven by setup punchline. You know him well. It's Chandler Bing in Friends. But his very character is built on I use comedy as a defense mechanism. Hmm. So the fact that he tells jokes, set up punchline, is a function of his own comic filter, I tell jokes as a defense mechanism. That's where the action really is in stand-up comedy. I'm sorry, in sitcom. I'll stand up too. I just, uh, I'd want to just pick up on something uh, that um, James said. Just, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about, carry on talk about that in a, in a bit. But um, you said, um, James said in part of that build up to that, he said that writing sitcom is very, very hard. And actually, I've been reading your little book of sitcom, uh, which is a book uh, that you've just narrated and is you're sort of bringing out uh, again now. Um, and the phrase in that says, "Writing sitcom isn't hard." So um, maybe I should just leave the room now and leave you two guys to fight it out or have a debate. Explain yourself, John. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Why is writing sitcom not hard? Um, (laughs) Writing a sitcom isn't hard if you break it down into smaller and smaller pieces until you actually get hold of a piece you can do something with. I'll give you an example. If I were a producer and I said to you, come up with an idea for a sitcom, and you sat down to do that, that would be hard because you don't have any idea what kind of sitcom you're making yet. But if I said to you, I'd like to see a romantic comedy between two people with strong comic voices in opposition to each other, now the problem is a little easier to solve. And if I I said to you, let's start with giving names to those characters, and you said, well, we'll call them – Cable, K- Abel, Kane and Amy. Kane and Amy. There we go. We're we'll yeah. calling Kane and Amy. <laughs> All right. That was a problem that was small enough for me to solve. Name the characters. Now that I have the characters, I can start solving other problems that are equally small. What we take away from this, what's the, the money in this idea is writing a sitcom is hard or anything is hard if the problem is stated too broadly. To make it easier, just break it down into smaller and smaller problems until you get down to the level of problems that you can actually solve. When that's happening, then you're no longer afraid. You're no longer saying, I'm about to make a bad choice or I don't trust my choice because the choice you're making is so small, you don't really invest your ego in it. So now you're operating more effectively in two ways. First, you're operating more effectively because you're problem solving at an appropriate level. And second, you're operating effectively because you've made the problem so small that all the normal emotional noise that fills your head is no longer filling your head. That's when sitcom goes from hard to easy. So say I, so say we all. Well, that is a fine explanation from a man from an optimistic can-do nation. Whereas <laughs> my, I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, Writing That Sitcom. And the first chapter or two, I'm basically trying to talk you out of it because it's just not worth it. It's just, it's so hard. If I can talk you out of it, I've done you a favor. And I'm trying to wheedle out the time wasters because they're just going to bang their heads against the wall. But I, I love well, the idea that it's the, the approach, because then fundamentally, once you decide I want to do this, that just break it down, break it down is really, really good advice and not be overawed yeah. by it. Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to create conflict, but I, I'm going to back Dave or get Dave to back me again on this. Uh, I understand what you're saying. It's heartbreaking because the chances of success are so slim and the task is so daunting. But I'm working on a new book now. I'm working on a book called The Little Book of Stand Up, which is about stand up comedy. And one of the things we know is that most everybody who tries stand up comedy will get no level of success at all. That is to say, the failure rate in that industry is hugely high. So why should anybody try to do it at all? Why should anybody try to write sitcom at all? If you're thinking about the level of success I can have out there if I walk down this road, you're setting yourself up for failure. 
But if you're thinking about the level of success I can have exploring my creative tools and using my creative muscles to create things that make me feel good about myself, that's something you can have success with every day. And for my money, Understanding the difference between seeking your validation from those people out there, from the Hollywoods of this world, where validation is so rare and so unlikely to fall at your feet, and instead turning that validation inward and saying, if I see myself as someone who's using my creative muscle to do things that excite me, that's success. That change is fundamental. Once you've made that change, then you can work all day, every day happily because that you know your job is just to improve your craft. And what happens as a consequence of improving your craft, that remains to be seen. I feel like we're side. doing high school debate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. I think that's right. Is you got to do it because you want to do it. And but then break it down into small chunks, I, th I think is, is really helpful. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm totally back that. And in fact, I, I, I had a chapter in the, the book that I did, uh, the last book I did um, about uh, how to keep writing during a pandemic. And uh, it was about um, the, the idea of, you know, about when you think, think about when you're thinking of giving up. And it's kind of about, well, what are you giving up? Are you giving up the uh, notion that, um, that, uh, NBC or BBC are going to buy your sitcom or you know are you giving up just writing for the sheer pleasure of it and actually um, you know just just kind of getting up every day and doing some writing and not really caring uh, whether or not this is something that, that that's going to be seen by other people it's like you like you say you know you're doing it because you want to do it and I think yeah you know I'm into that definitely um well as you put it Sorry. No, you're gone. Well, I was just going to say, if you put it in the context of the pandemic, then it's really interestingly complex. Because when the pandemic struck, creative people had a, a common reaction all over the world, which is, I can't control this thing. This thing is overwhelming me, this tidal wave. What can I control? I can control my response to this thing. So actually, a lot of people opened up creative practice where they didn't have one before, just because they had such an, an urgent emotional need to tell the pandemic, you don't own me completely. I still have something to say. I worked that vein by teaching a series of writing workshops centered around, let's write a 500-word letter to COVID-19, because I really felt like people needed that cathartic experience. We try to make it funny if we can, but mostly it's about coming to terms with the situation that you're in and feeling better about what you're doing within it. But I want to tell you something for myself. One thing COVID-19 did was it let me off the hook in a profound way. Because all my life, the thing that I've needed is I've got to have a story to tell. Like, Back when I was a singer-songwriter, I got to have a gig coming up that I can tell people about. When I was in sitcom, I had to tell people about, I've got an episode coming up that, that you'll want to see. You won't want to miss it. Always have to have a story to tell. And for my own kind of well-being, if I don't have a story to tell, new book coming out, new travels, new achievement, I don't feel 100% good about myself. When the pandemic hit, it cost me my Euro tour 2020. And also it turns out my Euro tour 2021. But what it gave me was an excuse not to do those things. Hmm. So suddenly I had the freedom to explore other ideas and other avenues without ever having to worry about having a story to tell. Nobody had a story to tell. Hmm. Nobody could do anything. That's what set me free during a pandemic. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Temporarily, I might add. Yeah. Only temporarily. Um, so to come back to uh, what, what we were saying there, and I, I think that's a, a brilliant um, description, breaking things down. And also before that, talking about uh, character, how jokes, jokes are character uh, and char character is, is how you get your jokes. And um, I had a very interesting uh, little bit of seren serendipity. A couple of weeks ago, I was working with a, a, a writer and uh, we were talking about character and um I was saying, you know, make sure there's what your character needs to have uh, this internal uh, conflict and they have to have their external uh, conflict as well. And the guy who I was working with, this guy who wants to be a writer, he said, uh, he said, yeah, and also uh, they need a global conflict. Uh, and I said, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. Where did you uh, pick that up? And he said, oh, there's a book I picked up on the Internet called The... Uh, 
the uh, <laughs> little book of sitcom and um i said oh god you know that is just i'm interviewing the guy who wrote that in two weeks time you know so um that that was great and you and i i, I I hadn't started reading the book then. There it was, internal, external, global. So um, can you kind of elaborate on that for us, what, what you mean oh, by Oh, on levels of conflict? Yeah, sure. This one's easy. Um, in drama, not just in situation comedy, but in all forms, forms of drama, there are three potential levels of conflict. These levels of conflict are global conflict, character at war against the world, local conflict, two characters at war with one another in interpersonal battle, and inner conflict characters war within. In a good situation comedy, in a well-constructed situation comedy, all three levels of conflict are present. In a less successful situation comedy, that level of inner conflict is missing, and you can really feel that it's missing because it makes the material feel more like a kid's show or a cartoon or even a soap opera than real drama. Global conflict. Characters war against the world. The main thing here is that the character knows the character is at war with forces, but those forces don't know they're at war with the character. So this is things like nature, government, army, taxes, politics, critters, you know, snakes and, and, and rats, illness, anything where it's an unequal battle between me, the character who knows what's going on, and impersonal forces that are just there fighting me. That's global conflict. Now, local conflict is direct interpersonal war between characters who have a strong emotional stake in one another's lives, uh, husband and wife, brother and sister, co-workers, this kind of thing. Let's imagine, just for the sake of example, that we're driving down the road in a car, husband and wife, and they get lost. The fact of their being lost, that's the global conflict. We thought we knew where we were going. We didn't get there. Global conflict. Now we're at war with the world. Specifically, we don't know what's going on. But inside the car, a fight is taking place. And the fight is, you should have stopped to ask for directions. No, I didn't need to stop and ask for directions. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. Now we fight. That's interpersonal conflict. Now we go one level deeper and we arrive at inner conflict, which is the character saying, I want A, but I don't want B. I want two different things at the same time, and that drives this inner conflict I'm feeling. Both of these characters in a situation might be feeling, I want to be right, but I don't want to start a fight that's going to cost me bad feelings for the next six hours of this drive. And that's where you have traffic, or sorry, getting lost as a global conflict triggering an argument between the passengers in the car, which is the local conflict, in turn triggering the war within each of these characters, that's the inner conflict. Again, when we talk about breaking things down, all you got to do is look at your moments and ask this story moment right here, are all three levels of conflict present? Can I see them fighting against the world? Can I see them fighting against each other? Can I see them fighting against themselves? If the answer is yes, the moment works. If the answer is no, pieces are missing. Identify which of those pieces are and add them right in. And there, that's levels of conflict in less than five minutes. Booyah! Oh, yeah. I mean, that is dynamite. Thank you for that. Because I've, I've, you've, you've helped explain some scripts to me that I've read because I ended up reading up quite a lot of scripts for this, that, and the other. And you quite often, you normally get a script which does one of those things quite well. So you have a character with an internal conflict, but he's kind of talking past everybody around him or her. And everyone's kind of not really understanding that character. And there's, there's no real... There's no real conflict because they're just missing each other. Um, and then you have the other ones where it's just argument. And there's, it's just like this, this is just people who don't like each other um, stuck together. And then there's other ones where you have like this global, I'm going to save the world through, you know, uh, through climate catastrophe. Right. And nothing matters but that. And yeah, then and you're James Bond and you're kind of a cartoon. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and actually, and the other thing I'm finding a lot, and I'd be interested in your um, thought on this is the, the the question i'm getting asked all the time and i'm still not sure i've got the right answer to it is the fact that these conflicts and quests kind of span out over you know people basically now just keep talking about story arcs and in the past i used to say look you've written a movie you've not written a sitcom and a, and a sitcom is is act two forever which is why the the first episode's virtually impossible to write, and the final episode's usually a disaster because you're trying to end a format that's unending. And even the last episode of Seinfeld stinks, and I love Seinfeld. 
Um, but, you know, how do we start the conflict and end the conflict um, within this context of, you know, now they're watching TV shows that are basically six hour movies um, and they're wanting to write comedies like that. And I, it's, I'm finding it hard to say, don't do that. Uh, Big Bang Theory is your model. Cheers is your model because people still want those shows. Um, do you have any wisdom? You know, do you have any wisdom on yeah. that? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I always have wisdom. Whether it's true wisdom or false wisdom, you can count on me to have <laughs> just wisdom. Use, just use the same uh, level of confidence, and no one's going to know. And we'll, we'll cut exactly. that last well, bit out. As, I, as I've always said, if you can't be right, be loud. If you're loud enough, long enough, you will appear to be right. Uh, to to your to your question, this is the way I think about it. First of all, we understand that the definition of sitcom has changed and continues to change. The idea that you're talking about of standalone episodes where things happen in one episode completely unrelated to things that happen in other episodes, that still exists, but it's definitely out of favor in this time. People are much more interested in shows that not only give them good value in terms of lots and lots of laughs, but also give them good value in terms of interesting story and interesting character growth. How do we manage that expectation or that audience desire knowing that we're writing, as you put it, a permanent act two? Here's how. Told you I had an answer. Think of your situation comedy as a war. Characters are fighting a war against each other, and the war will last from the first episode to the last episode. Take the example of Married with Children. Al versus Peg. Al wants to have everything his way in the relationship. Peg wants to have everything her way in the relationship. And that's their war, the war over the question of who gets to have their way. Now that you know what the total war is, you can ask yourself, what battles can take place within this war of a particular type? Battles that are big enough to matter, but not so big that they change the balance of power in the war. Then you can have Al gets a lottery ticket and thinks he's won a million dollars, and they fight over how to spend the money they don't have. This is a classic kind of sitcom episode, and you can see that down there on the level of the story, it's going to be about if I can get this money spent the way I want it to be spent, then I win this battle. I don't win the war because it's too small, but I do win this battle, and since I'm a sitcom character and I don't care anything about anything as much as I care about winning my battles, then I'm going to feel okay with that. Now, if you're a creator, you can say to yourself, what's the ultimate war and how can I start to stage battles that matter but don't result in people dying or moving away? I mean, if you think about it, married with children, the logical place for any of these stories to go is F you, I'm moving out. Like on everybody's part, that should be the answer. Hmm. Al should move out. Peg should move out. Everybody should just run as far away from each other as they possibly can. And yet they stay because any character who leaves represents um, – surrender in the war and the characters will never surrender nor should they hmm. so yeah battle in the war that's the short term that's the short shorthand for it think of your episode as a battle within the war that's really helpful and actually as you're saying it you know you just say well surely you'd move out but it's a sitcom so they don't it's just like yeah but in real life they don't either it's amazing what nah. people put up with and people live these dysfunctional lives for decades alongside each other and they just kind of get used to it and when you kind of walk into the situation you're just like a gog so i think sitcom is much more like real life than anything else um so you know this idea that it's kind of you're having to be artificial about it, it's like no people don't move out because they can't be bothered and also they want to stay and they want to win you know they <laughs> if you move out you've lost people don't like losing well well, you, you know, you're actually touching on the hidden power of situation comedy because a situation comedy will make an, a, um, a promise to the audience, will make a <clears throat> not, not a promise. The audience has a cherished belief. They have a sense that the world works in a certain way. Now, rationally, they know that a cherished belief is probably a fantasy not going to come true, but they like stories that reinforce their cherished belief. So let's say that you're in a dysfunctional family and you're watching Married with Children. Part of what draws you to the show is if that family, so much worse than my family, if they can somehow find a way to stick together, then my family can work too. 
it's a cherished belief. It's not reality. Your family sucks, yeah. and it's not going to work that much better. But for the 30 minutes that you're watching Married with Children, you say to yourself, my world is more like I want it to be than it actually is. <laughs> and that thought there, I'm going to repeat it because I think it's kind of cool. My world is more like I want it to be than, I actu- than it actually is. If I get a television show that reinforces that fantasy – I'm going to be drawn to that show in a very powerful way that I might not even recognize. I'll give you one more example just to tie this down. I developed a a sitcom that centered on the story of a 13-year-old girl whose mother was, I don't know, manic depressive, alcoholic, flamboyant personality, just huge over the top. The thinking here is if you're a 13-year-old girl, you have trouble dealing with your mother almost no matter what. Even if she's a good mom, even if you know she's a good mom, that's still a troubled relationship. There's a lot of stuff, bad stuff that can happen there between teenage girls and their moms. If you give that teenage girl a picture of a teenage girl like her dealing with a mom so much worse than her mom and somehow managing to get by, that gives the teenage girl viewer the profound positive message, I can make my life work too. And that's what yeah. draws her to the show. Yeah, there's a um, that's really helpful, and it reminds me of how there's a, a UK soap opera called EastEnders set in the East End of London, and the Christmas episode is famously horrendous, and it's this, the utter disintegration of a community at Christmas, and everyone watches it, and millions of people tune in because they just think, no matter how bad my Christmas is, it's not <laughs> it's as bad as it's not as bad as EastEnders. Yeah, I have a feeling. I have a feeling we're we're dancing along the line of of social difference or cultural difference between the U.S. and the U.K. because we're talking about the same thing. But you're looking at it from, if I may be so bold, a particularly British attitude of no matter how bad my thing is, thank God somebody has it worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm thinking about it. Whereas whereas I'm looking at it from the American point of view, which is no matter how bad things are, I can always pretend they'll get better. Yeah. Yeah. uh, which is equally phony baloney. Yeah. But but it, it's it's I think that's why shows that work on both sides of the Atlantic work because they meet both of those yeah. uh, expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really super rare as a result of that. I mean, big hits on they are. one side or the other are rare enough, but the ones that do both. And I guess in a way, we we when we watch Frasier over here, which we still do, um, you're just kind of tuned into an American way of thinking. And so therefore you kind of go with it. Um, Whereas I don't think the British stuff does so well in, in, in the U.S. Uh, on, on its own terms, you know, in nothing like the same way that it does, hmm. you know. What about um, how was episodes received in the U.K.? Did okay? It, yeah, it was all right. And I mean, it, it, it was liked. It, it didn't get a huge audience. Um, hmm. it, it, but, you I, know, and yeah. that, Matt LeBlanc. Sorry, hey, it's, you it's know. A, it's, it's worth mentioning also that this business of culture looking at itself has a lot of um, – has a certain inbred quality to it. Let me tell you what I mean. I made a sitcom in New Zealand in 1993. I went to New Zealand and recruited and trained that country's first generation of sitcom writers. And it was, it was a really exciting and I thought worthwhile project. Um, we went ahead and made a sitcom that for a lot of reasons turned out to be a notable failure. But the main reason or one of the main reasons it was a failure was that there was a certain cultural expectation on the part of the audience that it wasn't going to be any good and a certain amount of satisfaction to be derived from seeing it fail, from having their expectations. It's New Zealand project. It's not going to be any good. And look, it's not very good. So uh, my expectations are met. Yay, I win. The reason that I mentioned this is that for a lot of people associated with this with the show, this failure has been a bit of a burden. One of the creators went so far as to make a podcast last year called The Worst Sitcom Ever Made. And now I'm here to tell you, I participated in that project. It wasn't the worst sitcom ever made. It didn't even make my top 10 of shows that I've personally been involved with. But but it it is a great podcast and a great reflection on how the success of material, no matter how well-intentioned you are, it's in the audience's hands, and the audience will do things with it that you never imagined and can't possibly control. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I remember the uh, the guy who wrote the uh, f- famous episode of Happy Days 
um, in which the Fonz uh, jumps over uh, a shark, and mm-hmm. hence the phrase uh, "jump the shark" to mean this show has gone too far. And not only did he uh, write this episode, but he was proud of it, and he wrote this uh, blog about saying, "You know, this is a this is actually a show that was a really good show, and I'm really pleased with it." And it is, you're right. It's just, um, but, yeah. but. He's he's fighting a losing battle there, you know, because... Yeah, that, although at the time, I think he makes the valid argument that nobody at the time thought, oh, Happy Days has finally jumped the shark. This is ridiculous. It's like, you know, it's it's all it's all hindsight. But yeah, that, um, yeah there, there is that audience expectation as well, isn't there? And, it, and no matter how, no matter how successful you are, you're still, that, those things are still going to bother you. A while ago, we spoke to Stephen Moffat, um, and he is the showrunner of, you know, Sherlock. That's such and a man crush on Stephen Moffat. I mean, he's amazing. But he wrote this sitcom called Chalk, um, which was a set, which is about a, a school in the UK. And it wasn't actually that bad. But for some reason, people decided that they hated it. And they recommissioned it for a second series. And people hated that even more. <laughs> um, and when eventually, I think Sherlock became a big success, he was just like, finally i'm i'm the guy that didn't write you know chalk you know that's not going to be the thing um so yeah, that he, just, he had already yeah. written coupling which is the best sitcom yeah. in the history of ever okay and, uh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah and doctor who yeah Come on. yeah yeah but it was just like that was the millstone he felt um and that people just well, decided we're gonna, over it. We're i got much bigger millstones than that we're gonna yeah yeah it's just like i would i would i would I would die for a millstone like that. Yeah, uh, really. But um, um, but you know, Stephen Moffat. We, we interviewed him, and even he has that uh, thing that all writers have. And he said, you know, at the point at which you've finished writing the script and it's as good as you think you can possibly make it, and then he said, uh, everything is absolutely fine until that moment where you go press send, and the second that you send your mm-hmm. script out, you go. Oh, oh no! Actually, no. I should no, no. There's a, the, oh no, that line. Oh god, I left that typing error. Oh god, it's going to look terrible. Um, so that's what yeah. I share with Stephen Moffat. I think that's what. I, uh, I, I I tell you how I handle that. I got this piece of information from a fellow broadcaster when I was doing play-by-play color commentary on a poker tournament. Yes, it's true. That was my job. And I made a mistake. I misdeclared or misrepresented something, and I said something was wrong. And a moment later, I tried to correct it and did the best I could. But it was an awkward moment. And uh, when we came to a break, he turned to me and he said, listen, once it's out of your mouth, it's on its way to Pluto. (laughs) And I thought, that is so liberating. I I don't have to worry about it all. I can't control it. It's on its way to Pluto now. So – I, I, that's the attitude I have when I when I. In fact, I've actually done it kind of ritualistically when I'm submitting a manuscript or um, submitting art to a contest. I just click send and I say, "Well, it's on its way to Pluto." Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. On its way to Pluto, I think is a great catchphrase. Uh, we could we could sure do with something like that. Yeah, I just wanted and, to and, um, uh, sort of come back to to your book, and we've, we've you've talked a lot there about characters and the uh, the conflicts uh, that they have and the the different types of conflict. And uh, there's a phrase that you wrote which I which which stuck in my mind. I, I wrote down it says that the best conflicts are broad, deep, and enduring. And um, I just wonder I, and and thinking about what you've been saying there and talk about global conflicts and thinking about some of the more kind of uh, more recent kind of uh, pairings like say I was thinking of like um, uh, Le- Leslie Nope and uh, Ron Swanson in, in uh, Parks and Rec say or uh, Jake Jake Peralta and everyone I guess in uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> but but um, how how would you kind of explain what you mean by that broad deep and enduring uh lines of conflict yeah let's let's not use those examples let's make one up because that's more fun for me let's imagine we have two students moving into a freshman dorm together in fact for this sitcom that we're making up off the top of my head we're going to call it freshman dorm all right we've got two two students sharing a freshman dorm for fun we'll make one a boy and one a girl and add some sexual tension to it And we ask ourselves, what do these people want? Now, if it is not a broad and enduring line of conflict, we're going to get something like, um, I want to bring a mini fridge into the room uh, 
and my roommate doesn't want a mini fridge in the room. That's a small conflict. Can't build a series on that. Mike could build an episode on it. But if you give him the attitude, everything in society is good and strong and right and should be preserved, and you give her the attitude, everything in society is bad and corrupt and wrong and needs to be destroyed, then you have preserve versus destroy trapped together in the same dorm room. And when I speak of a line of conflict that is whatever I said, enduring, strong, and what did I say? Broad, Broad, deep, and enduring. Broad, deep, and enduring. We're talking about the difference between preserve and destroy, not the difference between uh, rock and rhythm and blues. Hmm. Or, yeah, mini fridge or aircon. This is like mini fridge or air, aircon. Yeah, exactly. Who, who cares? All the small, all the small arguments take place inside the context of the big question, and the big question is always, "What do I want?" Hmm. Every character is asking it in a sitcom. Every character is compelled to get it, and when you understand that, "What do I want?" is not, "I want a color TV." but what I want is the respect of the people around me, then you're much more on the right track. Yeah. It's not, it's not, I want, I want a color TV. That's fine. Why do you want it? I want it because my brother's got one. Uh, so I want a bigger mm-hmm. one than him. I want it because I've convinced myself that my photography can only be done on a screen this size and I need to be able to see the pixels. And I'm kidding myself that I'm an art genius. Well, there's the, I'm a techno geek and I don't want I've got the model from six months ago and I want the new model because the new, the old model is now terrible because of the new model. It's like, these are all right. fine no, reasons sorry. to want a TV, but they're sorry. all different. Sorry. sorry, I just have to jump in because now we're in creative process and it's so clear to me. You just named three things. You said, I, w- I could be, I want it for this reason or I want it for that reason or the third reason. Hmm. I responded so strong to the second reason. I want it because I'm fooling myself into thinking that I have artistic capability that I don't have. You, you why, did I res- <laughs> well, why did I respond to it? Yeah, I, it? It hit me emotionally. Like, oh, I can really relate to that. <laughs> so when I'm working collaboratively with other people, I'm really attuned to the answers that not only work on the level of problem solving, there's got to be, be a reason why, but also work on the level of I'm feeling that. Mm. We don't trust what we're feeling. And if we trust what we're feeling as writers and lean into that, then we don't get stuck in space that doesn't matter. And, and we can confront the really interesting truths that we're after in the first place. I just wanted you to know, James, that with that beat, you really touched my heart and not in a good way. Okay. Well, that's good because also we want to make sure that our, our stories or our, these epic contests that we're setting up, they're broad, but they're not bland. They're not generic. And actually that, just to go back to that example, I don't think I've seen much whereby somebody spends a lot of money on kit, but they have no actual talent. But that is quite a common thing. I remember at school, there was always a kid with the video camera. And when video cameras were expensive, this was the least creative person uh, that you'd ever met. They just had a rich dad (laughs) who who could drop four grand on a video camera. So you had to persuade this guy to make your idea. Um, uh, but yeah, there's that kind of, and then there's the new version is basically the person who owns every Mac device available because they're a creative person and they can't do the creative thing until they've got everything right. And, you know, they're, but yeah, I, Uh. but it's, it's that idea, isn't it? That Mm. if you're feeling, oh, that's interesting. And also you're feeling, I'm not thinking, oh, that's just that character from that show. Or that's just that character. You're just thinking, oh, that's someone. Maybe that's maybe that's the show. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. That's I, usually a good time. For, for me, it's the relative. I uh, remember when I was a kid, who was always the first, the first one to get a color TV, and brag to everybody about it. Uh, yeah, the first one to get uh, like you know a sort of decent cine camera. The first and. You know, and oh, come round, come to our house and come and watch this first. Come and watch. We've already got all the channels. We're the first ones to get cable. And mm-hmm. see, come, come and praise me. Come and validate me. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Come and make me feel yeah. good about myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, um, you've you've touched on something else that is so important, and I think we can cut through this as well. You were talking earlier about you open page one, and you're looking for a joke. 
And if you're not there, you're kind of thinking, hey, maybe the script should have some jokes. Where's a joke on page one? But I would propose something else. I should be able to open up your script to any page at random and find a reason to love what I'm looking at. And what I specifically mean is I want to fall in love with your characters. And even if your characters are bad people or in bad situations, if you love them, if you feel an emotional attachment to them as the writer, then your love is going to come through on the page. And I'm going to see it when I read that page. And I'm going to know that the most important question I can ask has been answered, which is, does this writer love his or her characters? Hmm. If that is true, I can fix the rest of it. I can make the story work. I can pump up the jokes, but the emotional bond that exists between the writer and the creation, that's indispensable to me. And when I think about the thousands of scripts that I've read that miss the target, that's where they miss. They miss because they don't seek a real emotional attachment between the writer and the work. Mm. And I think so that's why there... I, I always push against the big story arc thing about, oh, in episode one, this, and episode two, that, and episode three, that. I always think, I think that's a displacement activity because you mm. don't actually have a character with a, you know, a quest that I can relate to. And what you're doing is you're making them do stuff that's interesting rather than being interesting. Um, and I think that's why I tend to kind of just say, look, okay, it's not for me to say that you can't write a 15 hour action movie, which is basically what you clearly want to write with your sitcom. But uh, I think that's unwise because your character, you know, people, and that's what people are looking for. Sitcom, sitcom producers want to find a character and go, I could make a hundred of these rather than, okay, I can see this lasting six episodes and then we're done because he's gone to the moon uh, and that the show's over. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why the, 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 the story arc plotting stuff bothers me is because it feels like I don't think your characters are interesting if you need and, to do and, that. And is that. Am I being mean? That, I think also this is something that's very clear in your book, and uh, and, and James and I are, are uh, in agreement. I know about this, which is that when you are creating your characters, one of the best ways to create your characters is put them in a situation and then see what happens to them. And you you go. I'm, I mean, I at least sometimes try and have some little thoughts about what they want and what they're going to get. But you you say. Just dive straight in and um, and make something happen. Is that could 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 you sort of talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, first of all, I, James, I'm capturing the phrase displacement activity <laughs> as a, as a, as a as a great way of describing what I always think of as the run and jump phase of a writer's career, where we know how to write a chase scene, but we don't know how to write a love scene. That's a very, very common place for writers to be. Now I understand it to be displacement activity. And I was only guilty of that for 10 or 15 years of my career <laughs> that I can think of off the yeah. top of my head. Um, Dave, to your question about um, uh, putting the characters into action, I think a lot of people get bogged down in the development process by thinking too much about the question of, what is this character's backstory? How did they come to be where they are? My idea of the relationship with story and character is much simpler than that. If you put a character into story, you're going to learn more things about the character. If you then take what you've discovered about the character and put it back into the character, you're going to learn more things about the story you're trying to tell. So story and character are developed together. You put the character into story in order to understand the character. Then you capture the understanding of the character in order to refine the development of the story. But the bottom line is this. If you can find interesting things to do with your character when they're not doing interesting things, then that's a character you can count on to last for 100 episodes. If a character is funny playing with a fountain pen or playing with a ballpoint pen, then that character will be funny doing anything anywhere for, for all time. And if the first moment of our exposure to that character is watching him make a fountain of a, a ballpoint pen into something really funny, then the promise is clear. Watch this guy. You're going to see him being funny with small stuff until you're tired of it. Hopefully not for 100 episodes. <laughs> that reminds me of the, hmm. the story about Game of Thrones, which could be could easily have been guilty of just being a 100 percent plot show. Um, and I understand from the pilot that. They, they reshot some of the pilot and in the end they didn't have enough um, 
and they ended up with extra scenes that were just characters talking. And it turned out that we liked the Game of Thrones characters talking because they were actually mm. characters. And especially Tyrion Lannister. I mean, you can't take your eyes off that guy, um, Peter Dinklage. And so, you know, I think the, the temptation is to dive into story, story, story. And actually, it's just like, if you don't have any characters, no one cares about the story. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not that hard to find out there already. Uh, you've got to offer something, offer something different. It's, it's funny you should say that. As I mentioned earlier, I'm just finishing this draft of uh, the little book of stand-up. And one of the things that I talk about is when you're stand-up comic and you're standing on stage, there is only one thing you know that the audience doesn't know, and that's what it's like to be you. But it turns out that that one thing is the only thing about you that the audience really wants to know. Because my feeling is that as creators, we are the audience is a voyeur to our experience. And if we deny them the experience, the opportunity to be a voyeur to our experience, then they're not going to be our friends. They're not going to like us. But if we just deliver the authentic truth of what it's like to be me, whether in, in sitcom or stand-up or painting or whatever, that's what the audience wants because it's the only thing they can't get from themselves. Yeah. And that goes for sitcom writing too. And we're always trying to tell people to, you know, why are you writing this show? Why are you, why are you writing this mm. show? Because if you don't have answers to those questions, uh, then you're probably not going to get very far. You've done what I call, you've written fan fiction. You've written, you like sitcoms and you've had a go at writing one. And mm. th there's no reason for it to exist. Um, uh, Dave, we've, we've got a couple of minutes left. So do you, yeah. want, do you want to get one more question in before we have to let our, our yeah, friend go? Yeah, I mean, loads more I'd love to ask, but um, I'd like to um, talk, talk about your, you, you talk a lot about the uh, writing scenes. And uh, I think that's a really, uh, that's an area where we're, you know, we don't really talk enough about how people do that. And you've got a lot of uh, really interesting uh, stuff to say about, you know, how, how, how does one write a scene in a sitcom? Uh, well, let me see if I can skim the cream. The, the easiest way to look at a scene is to think of it as existing in three parts. And the three parts are the existing emotional state and then a pivot, which is a new piece of information that triggers a change in emotional state, and then the new emotional state. The three activities are happening in the scene. The first activity is establishing the emotional state of mind of the characters in the scene. The second thing that happens is introducing a new piece of information that changes the way they feel about the scene. And the third piece of information or the third moment in the scene is exploring the consequences of that new information. You want an example? I have an example. Let's think about that couple we were talking about before, the ones who were trapped together in that dorm room. Okay, bad news. They've had sex. Good news. It was good sex. But bad news. One of them might be pregnant. I will let you guess which one. <laughs> They're looking at a pregnancy. They have just bought a pregnancy test. Okay. As the scene opens up, they have the pregnancy test, but they don't know the results. The, the outcome is, is present but hidden. Are you with me on that? Their emotional state is nervous anticipation, a question. We don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to be burdened with the child? Are we going to be free? How do we feel about that? We don't know. So the first moment of the scene, the, the uh, existing um, state of mind or um, uh, state of emotion is nervous, anticipation, unsettled, curious. Now, here comes the new piece of information, the results of that pregnancy test. Might be positive, might be negative. Doesn't really matter. Whether it's positive or negative, it's going to cause a tremendous change in emotional state. Let's just say that it's negative and that's a good outcome for both of them. The minute they see that result, then they relax they become happy, they become carefree, they probably start taking off their clothes and screwing once again and getting right back into the same problem. And that's the scene. We go from nervous and apprehensive across the pivot of new information into the new world of carefree and having sex. Wow. That's how the pros do it, kids, oh. and you can do it that way too. Wow. I mean, boy, if you don't want to read if you don't want to know about sitcom then do not buy this guy's book uh, <laughs> I, i'm excited i'm i'm getting hold of this and i'm i'm reading it so 
um, because it's just like that. That's a scene, you know. And they're tearing each other's clothes off, and scene, scene. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a beautiful bit of work. Um, what 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 idiots they are, and yet somehow, as you were talking about roommates, it just makes me think of. There's another podcast about scripts called Script Notes, and Craig Mason is one of the hosts. And at college, I believe he used to share a dorm room with Ted Cruz. <laughs> just and uh, you can imagine how that went and how fondly uh, Ted is remembered uh, by Craig okay. Mason. To be honest, I suspect Ted didn't think much of Craig either, but uh, I don't know. Uh, but what 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 a picture! I can't imagine those two tearing each other's clothes off. If, if <laughs> no, not really. Honest. Well, no, maybe yeah, no one knows what goes on behind closed okay, doors. Okay, that's so. greased, greased up and fight, uh, Greco-Roman style. Um, <laughs> but as I say, I mean, we 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 put you in the same category as Aristotle. But that was pretty Aristotelian, wasn't it, Dave? That was fantastic. Uh, really, really glad to have uh, had you on the show, John. Really, uh, and tell us again about the book. Uh, what what uh, little book of sitcom? Well, all right. Well, let me let me let me see if I can um, boil this down to. 25 words or less. First of all, anybody who wants to know more about me just needs to know my name, John Vorhaus, J-O-H-N-V-O-R-H-A-U-S. If you have that, you have my website, johnvorhaus.com, where you can see a bunch of books. You also can type that into your Amazon search engine and get to my Amazon author page, which is tremendous and robust. You can also go to uh, my Redbubble shop where I sell coffee mugs and T-shirts and original art. That's kind of fun. Again, just drop my name in there in the search box and you'll find my way your way to my designs, which are cool. The Little Book of Sitcom is currently available on audio Author narrated audio hasn't been for 10 years, but it is now. I'm excited about that. You can go to audio and you can get the book with me reading it to you and sharing it with you. And I think that's with all due false modesty. I think that's kind of awesome because uh, I think that the author brings something to the read that no one else necessarily can. Got a bunch of novels on books on tape and other stuff, too. Once you find your way into my work, I hope you'll find a reason to stay there. But finally, this. I'm a real person in the real world. And if you're out there with a question for a real person in the real world, I invite you to reach out to me. You can contact me through my website. Part of why I do what I do is legitimately to help people. So if you think I can help people and you're one of them people, you let me know because I am here for you in a profound and real way. Excellent. Well, we'll put links uh, in the show notes for that, especially links to, uh, to your books. Um, but it's been great to have you, John. It's been fascinating. And uh, much we'll, we'll basically we're going to have to do this again, maybe when your stand up book comes out and we can learn, learn the lessons from that as well. It, it, first of all, let me say I would love to come back on your show. But let me also add that that's my design, because <laughs> I always say no matter what my text is, my subtext is always the same. Get them hooked on the drug that is John Poorhouse. <laughs> We're, right well i think we have to go yeah. to cold turkey for a little while but uh but we'll see how we go yeah yeah well that's fantastic john and uh in fact there was a great um, difference between brits and americans uh the way that you uh uh told us about yourself and your website uh when we ask british people that they say oh uh well um you know well you can, I might have you can probably find things. it somewhere if you search the yeah. internet and yeah. you know no, you don't want to so, know uh, you don't want to know about me but that's so uh, that was fantastic but they are it's a uh, it's a great book and the comedy toolbox uh remains you know uh, one of the, the, the great books about writing like aristotelian in scope <laughs> aristotelian <laughs> i think we're gonna you know we're not gonna top that so uh great anyway Thanks very much, John. Thanks, John. Thanks very much for you listening at home, wherever you are, on a bus, on a tube train, in the air. Uh, and we will speak to you next time. Cheerio. Thanks a lot.